Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Tonight we're joined by David Melding, MS. First elected to the National Assembly for Wales in 1999 as our representative of South Wales Central, the region he still represents today. He announced earlier this year that he would be not seeking re-election to the Senedd, but today he joins us to talk his life in the Senedd and more. Hello, David. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Matt. So we're going to start right at the beginning of your, of your time in politics. What got you interested in politics to begin with? Well, I, I was hideously interested in politics from a young age. I think when the jam announced they were fed up with the Labour government in the late 70s and were thinking about voting Conservative, I don't think they, 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 they sort of stuck with that for very long. But I mean, um, it, it, it was quite a tempestuous time, the 1970s, a very difficult time for any. And uh, I kind of came of age at that time and got interested. And then it, I went on to university and uh, like many uh, aspiring uh, uh, politicians, and then, you know, the, the happenstance of being in the right place at the right time and winning an election, which, uh, you know, many are called, uh, but not that many get to serve. So it's, uh, you know, you're quite fortunate, really, to have the opportunity, because uh, I know so many people in the party of at least equal ability to me that, you know, just didn't get the opportunity. So I do tell people that uh, uh, you need a plan B. I always had a plan B, but I'm very pleased that in the end, my ambition to be a politician did work out. You're from Neath originally, aren't you? So it's not a traditional hotbed for uh, conservatism, you know. What made you join the Conservatives? You know, there's, there's, uh, there's always been a solid vote in Neath for the Conservatives, right? which you're right, I mean, obviously, part of the uh, South Wales coal field and you know, the prevailing political mood was obviously quite strongly Labour. But there were, I mean, Plaid Cymru had presence in, on the council and uh, the ratepayers had done very well in the 1970s and they were kind of lightly disguised Conservatives, I, I would say. So it, was a, it, it wasn't quite as sort of uh, uh, monolithic as sometimes it sounds. But I, I think your political views get formed fairly early and, uh, we, you know, mine were pretty much those of, you know, conservatism and uh, responsibility, liberty. And uh, I suppose, you know, if I had any great heroes, it was still, uh, I was born in 1962 and the Second World War was still very much alive in people's conversations, particularly your relatives and uh, some of the school teachers that had served in the war and that. And Churchill was this towering figure and, I, and his career fascinated me as well, though he didn't particularly like the Conservative Party. And he said, well, at least he had an awkward relationship with it. Uh, but that's another matter. So when did you join the party? Did you join before you went to university or was it a question uh, of, of getting in, very involved uh, at university? Yeah, no, I had joined just before. I, I went to university in 1981, joined the Young Conservatives and then and, and Neath had a branch, you know, so <laughs> when we say that uh, it, it, it wasn't a particularly rich field for Conservatives normally, I, I mean, you've got to remember in those days, the political parties still had large memberships. So, you know, in, even in Neath, you had a sizable uh, conservative association with some young conservatives. So I, I joined that. And then afterwards, uh, the real launch was uh, with the university. So when you were uh, on the podcast uh, last, you talked about the Senate of Chances for the Welsh Conservatives last year. But I think you surprised quite a few people when you talked about the referendum in 97 and how you actually were initially in favour of the No campaign. Um, why was that? Why did you back No to begin with? Well, I, I felt that 
For the United Kingdom to survive as a union, the best option was a unitary state, and with some reform, undoubtedly, but uh, that, that was the best option. I had written a piece a couple of years before for uh, Welsh Agenda, saying that uh, this is when devolution was very much you know, in the news in terms of uh, uh, the Labour Party's proposals. And I, I basically said that if we didn't have a unitary UK, we should move to a federal uh, settlement fairly quickly. So I've always uh, viewed devolution as a bit too experimental. And for, so for those reasons, I didn't think it was particularly good statecraft. Uh, and obviously, it was very variable in, in different parts of the UK and England, you know, mostly left, left out at that stage, just the, the prospect of a London Assembly coming back. That's what I, uh, I, I, I found really, um, if not dangerous, then at least not terribly satisfactory settlement and it would be too much work in progress so i i opposed and voted no indeed in in 97 but the result in scotland just took us to new territory completely and uh, it was pointless then uh, um even dreaming about somehow turning the clock back so i uh, i had a last hurrah and then moved quickly <laughs> and uh, thought well you know the people have spoken and uh, this historical trend has to be respected and worked with. The Conservative Party in Wales, though, at the beginning of devolution, wasn't particularly comfortable with it, was it? And it, it did have sort no. of desires to, to reverse the referendum decision. Why do you think that was? Do you think that was that link to the unitary idea of the state more than anything else? Oh, I, I think psychologically it, it was all wrapped up in, you know, the massive defeat in uh, 97, just before the referendum. And uh, a you know a sense of unease about decentralisation, which is often you know an ideology in terms of uh, how you structure government or, or of the centre right, but in Britain it's not really been an idea that sat comfortably with uh, conservatives. So there was that. So uh, the the culture was still very much for the ancien regime, if I can put it that way. And then there was a lot of confusion. You're quite right. In, in the 99 campaign, whilst the party didn't come out and say it would like to reverse devolution, the mood music and with Rod Richards as our leader and Fair Play for All as the manifesto title, you, you may recall, and you know these concepts like linguistic ap apartheid that we used, it horrified most of us, actually who were standing, uh, what the leadership were doing. But uh, there were hints, I suppose, that if events moved a certain way, we might revisit the referendum. But of course, they moved in the opposite direction, including um, Rod Richards moving out of the leadership and the party. So uh, uh, the situation then changed quite dramatically when uh, it, it was realised that we had to really accept and, and have a clarity of a vote. You know, in, in our position and accept the result and work with it. So, uh, but it did, I mean, it was really uh, the early 2000s before that was transmitted and accepted thoroughly by all the activists, most of the activists anyway. So it, it was quite a shaky time. How important do you think Nick Bourne was to that, to that process of sort of becoming to embrace devolution? And also, do you mind talking a little bit about Mline, the idea to rebrand the Welsh Conservatives and... Yeah that process and how that went? Well, I, I think, you know, leaders are hugely important. It's, it's a job I could never have done and, you know, never had aspirations to do. And I've, uh, I, you know, I've, I've seen the effort it, it, that's required in leadership through Nick Bourne's uh, uh, leadership, which I, I do think was exceptional. 
I don't think Nick was, you know, culturally that comfortable with devolution, but he was a realist. I think he was very tactful in a way I would never have been because, you know, I, early on, I, you know, I was writing saying that well, we, we have to accept the reality of this. And, and actually, once we've done that, it would be better to have a robust form of devolution, which was you know, much more balanced across the UK, which eventually became the party's position. But it took many years for that to happen. But I think Nick had those sort of skills of tact and building consensus within the party and determination. But, you know, we didn't move very far until after the 2003 election. I moved a bit earlier with things like a, a line, I think, was launched in 2001. I'd have to check my record. But certainly I was writing by 2001 and, and making speeches about, you know, a fairly you know, new approach for the Conservative Party in terms of territorial politics. We had to really examine our tradition and, and ask whether it was still really fit for purpose and, and, and you know, craft a new one, basically, and then seek inspiration from Canada, Australia, where centre-right and Germany, where centre-right parties are um, usually the side of politics most in favour of federal mechanisms or devolved mechanisms. In the last few years, I think a lot of people get the feeling that the Conservatives in the Wales are starting to become a little bit more hostile towards devolution again, especially on, you know, when you look on social media at the members and stuff like that. Do you think that's the case? Do you think that's the genuine feeling amongst party members that they are a bit more hostile towards devolution now? I think the, what has changed from those days is that there's been a, uh, you know, a fracturing of politics and we're in a more volatile political age with, you know, wider swings in uh, election results. And uh, so parties have a much larger shoulder of support than they once had, which they may get or they may not get at an election, and their cohort is smaller. So this has clearly happened in the Conservative Party. And, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's achievement was to, to and, and uh, Mrs. Theresa May as well, Mrs. May's achievement in 27 was to get us much closer to the sort of levels Mrs. Thatcher got. But, uh, you, you know, our vote can now swing anything between the low 30s and the mid 40s and, uh, and Labour similar. So this, this shoulder is there and, and some of that is going off to, you know, green parties and on the right to, uh, you know, parties like UKIP and now we've got abolished the Assembly Party. Uh, if that's their precise title, I apologise if I got something wrong. So I think to some extent the party has an eye on the danger of losing some support to that side. And so in, in its desire to be quite a wide big tent, uh, you know, puts out some messages. But I don't seriously, it thinks that there's going to be a reversal of devolution. But uh, I, I suppose it's, it's, it's got to sort of talk tough sometimes. So that, that's basically what I think is happening. In 2009, you wrote your, your book, Will Britain Survive Beyond 2020? I mean, we're nearly at the end of 2020, so you're probably right by now. But what made you write the book at the time? And how do you think the union will survive until 20? Do you think this union can survive until 2030? Yeah, yeah. Well, I pinched the title or adapted it, uh, the famous uh, um, Soviet era publication by a, uh, um, a dissident of that time. Uh, whose name escapes me embarrassingly at the moment. Uh, but anyway, um, and, and he wrote this book published, I think, in 1970, uh, Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? 1984 was, you know, all well and that, and uh, people of my age 
1984 before we got to it, sort of loomed a bit, you know, as a year of uh, great portent, potentially, which would mystify younger people, I realise. There we are. Uh, we're all embedded in our age. And, uh, I mean, he only got it wrong by five years. And, and it, it was a long essay and incredibly prescient. You know, if you read it today, uh, the, the sort of trends that were picked up or predicted in 1970 proved to be very accurate. So anyway, that was the inspiration. I, I should say I read politics at university. So uh, this both gave me an interest in, you know, political structures like devolution versus federalism, if you're going to have a decentralized state. But also has given me a lifelong interest really in, in political philosophy. So um, in, in uh, 2007, the SNP won a plurality of seats in the Scottish Parliament, only by one or two, as I recall, over Labour, and then formed a minority government and were very skillful at that. So that, that basically what gave me the inspiration to uh, deliver, it was a lecture, first of all, that I delivered at the College of William and Mary, where I did my MA uh, in Virginia. So I, I went out and spoke to, um, uh, did, led a seminar, actually, for the, uh, the Faculty of Government there. And I took the title, you know, Will Britain Survive Beyond 2020? And, and then from that, expanded it into, a, you know, a book of essays. So, uh, and I should say that the, fa the Faculty of Government, obviously, as I'm a, a graduate, they treated me with great respect, but I think they thought I was crackers to sort of even suggest that, uh, you know, this was a prospect because the SMB had won, uh, or at least with the government. I just thought it was a big moment for Britain and it sort of marked the end of the days that some people thought devolution would somehow contain and reverse nationalism. I also thought that was a very strange uh, analysis of the situation because uh, what people forget about devolution is that it's, it, it's not a weak version of federalism, it's an uncontrolled version because it doesn't have a constitutional settlement at its heart and it doesn't draw clear boundaries. And of course, we were devolving to, uh, you know, some of Europe's most ancient nations. These weren't vague, anemic, regional sort of concepts that had suddenly been invented. I mean, you were talking Scotland, Wales. Uh, and I just thought that the sort of political nationhood would be a very vital force, not necessarily leading to desire to secede from the UK, though in Scotland, obviously, that is another question, but something that needed a more uh, vigorous, energetic response from unions. So. So I was looking at these things and I examined also the Irish question, which, um, you know, people forget the first secession happened 100 years ago and was a very significant one and one that 10 years earlier you would have thought most unlikely. So, you know, those are some of the ideas I was grabbing. Cohen Jones was on recently and he talked about devolution providing a sort of a, a, a sense of nationhood that without devolution just wouldn't be there in modern day Wales or wouldn't be as prevalent in modern day Wales. And you seem to talk about how this, you know, giving political form to Wales that hadn't necessarily been there in the same way prior to devolution has obviously kick-started so many different things. Do you think it's devolution per se that has created this sense of nationhood and this expanded sense of nationhood, or do you think there's more to it than that? Well, I think um, an institutional polit political dimension to nationhood is, uh, you know, rather than saying it's devolution, because a uh, coherent federalism would have done the same. I think it's the mood of the times, I think, of, of which this is a really important element, but I don't think it's the whole picture. But it is remarkable how, you know, the progression that devolution took into a much more robust, more or less Scottish system, 
you know, very quickly. And, and you know, from a absolutely wafer-thin majority in 97 to a very nearly two-thirds endorsement of primary powers in, in, uh, in 2011. So, you know, that's where it's remained. You know, the public support was a huge shift, really, uh, from... Uh, from 97 and of course that meant a lot that it was the people that had voted no had suddenly you know again on for half of them had been reconciled within 10 years well you know if you voted no in 97 and then you know just over 10 years later were uh, keen for more powers that's quite a big shift how do you think the union is preserved then do you think it's through something technocratic such as federalism or confederalism do you think it's more a question of central government giving the devolved administrations more respect, or at least on the face of it, giving them more respect? Or would- well, I think I would start with um, those that avow unionism, you know, being political unionists. And, uh, uh, you know, I do challenge some people and say, well, what have you ever foregone so that you could preserve the union? I mean, what in your political, uh, you know, sort of armory have you said, right, we can't do that because... Uh, it would damage the union. And I think to be a unionist, you've got to accept there's some things you can't do in the union, or it will be, you know, very much undermined. And I think that's the sense that a lot of conservatives and quite senior ones, some of them, have, you know, lost. And uh, that puts us in a different position to, you know, even Major and Thatcher, I would say. And the indifference that is sometimes expressed um, and you saw this in Brexit, you know, with some people, uh, um, you know, more in England, but I mean, I think he wasn't just there saying that, well, if Brexit led to the breakup of the, the UK, they'd still want Brexit or England and Wales, it, or whatever you describe it as. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's been deeply damaging. It's uh, highly pernicious, that sort of to any coherent sense of unionism. So I think, you know, unionists have got to come up with something exciting and different as the counteroffer to Scottish independence. And, uh, you know, a technocratic solution, if, if, you know, Deeb or Max used to be talked about, I'm not sure that recently, um, and all sorts of uh, bells and whistles on the current system, I don't think it works. I, I think you've just, you've got to say to people, you know, should we recast the union so that uh, there is some form of foundational law that, that governs our constitution, that can't be changed that easily and not in the ordinary process. So that basically recognises the political sovereignty of Wales and Scotland and England within their domestic arena. And then there's an agreed way of dealing with uh, the big macroeconomics stuff, defence and foreign affairs, which I think would probably be in, a, in some reform of parliament around the upper house becoming the house of the union. And, and you know, you... you you celebrate Britishness. And I'll tell you one thing that's going to happen. If, if Scotland does secede, and then goodness knows what, we, you know, what sort of arrangements we would have in Wales and what would happen to uh, Northern Ireland then. But at some point, Britishness will come back in terms of how we live together in these islands. And it, you know, it wouldn't be then as a political union, but it would, I, I think it has that underlying um, sense of purpose and response to meaningful our cultural exchange, people marry, friends all over the place. I think it's capturing that in a new union that doesn't sort of get ossified and seem really uh, heavy-handed and centrally driven still, you know, with London basically saying, all right, we've got all these powers involved, but we still arbitrate them really. 
we still control a lot of your space for decision making because England's so big. You know, those are the things that really need to be tackled. And it's very interesting. Recently, of course, we we've seen sort of England English decentralization come of age, arguably. And I I've been long arguing for this, incidentally, that I've said it will be the cities and the regions that lead England to uh, the path and the road of decentralization. And we're certainly seeing that. It's a bit of an irony that just as England wakes up to, they don't want to be in a very centralized system because England has been and London is so dominant. That the moment they wake up and say, no, we want reform is the moment we might lose Scotland if we're not careful, which would be very sad if the English question finally gets answered the day before Scotland departs, you know? So I, I think there's a lot there for unionists to think about. I noticed today in your, your last of the unionists, you mentioned about English regional identity and in the mayors and the opportunity to take this step forward. So talking about the last of the unionists, uh, what inspired you to start writing your sort of nigh on daily updates on, on the state of Wales and the state of the union? Well, I want to save the union. I'd, or at least I want the union to be projected in a, in a modern guise, which initially the people of Scotland can then say, well, that's a really coherent alternative. If they, in the face of that, still accept independence, well, you know, they've had a really good free choice between two powerful alternatives and they've made their choice. But for Scotland to opt for independence because they just feel unionism has become tawdry and insipid or just, you know, rack, lacking the, the relish it once had, I think that would be very, very sad. So obviously it's in a way to shock my fellow unionists. But uh, I, whether it is, I don't know. I, I, I do notice on the uh, clicks or whatever you call them, or wherever you count these things, comments and retweets, um, it seems to be nationalists at most uh, uh, read my uh, perorations. But there we are. They are there. Uh, they're there to inspire unionists. But that's why I write it. People shouldn't think I'm a sort of crypto-nationalist uh, I, 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 in terms of, you know, what <laughs> Sure. independence that is absolutely not my agenda sure no it's it's no i think i think everyone from across the union nationalism perspective appreciate and the left and right appreciate the the thoughts definitely are you more positive as a consequence of writing these updates or since you started writing these updates about the fate of the union or, or are you more pessimistic i'm equally pessimistic as i was um that the, the day of the Brexit referendum. I, I then delivered um, a speech at St. Andrews University in, in September. There was a conference basically, you know, with the union after Brexit and, you know, I developed my thoughts. I thought, you know, the fact that very nearly two thirds of the Scottish people wanted to stay in the EU basically meant they wanted to remain a European nation, which of course was what they were told might not happen if they voted for independence in 2014. So I thought that was a tectonic um, shift and one that I know Brexiteers are never really engaged in. They sort of wished away or ignored. Not that I've denied that, you know, the reality of the Brexit vote either, mind, uh, you know, created a new reality and you have to live with it. But then, and also for the, you know, the first time since uh, uh, the Irish secession, you had the people of Northern Ireland make a constitutional decision that was in line with the Republic, not with Great Britain or, or, or England and Wales. And, and so I thought that was very significant. And then poor Wales kind of uh, was the odd one out amongst the Celtic nations in uh, the way it had voted. So, I mean, all this, I think, has created a, a very mixed up picture. And uh, I've just tried to give some clarity to 
the danger the union is in. It can only now be saved by the freshest and most radical approach, which taps our traditions, but, you know, is a new start, basically. And um, I just don't know if, um, you know, if, uh, if the Conservative Party, if uh, the political elite in England are, are up to it or, or will want to do it. You know, I think there's a real issue here. And so that's why I, you know, the very cheeky title, the uh, last of the Unionists, not the last of the Mohicans, but uh, we've all watched the film. Uh, but the last of the unionists. And I, I think it's worked as a hashtag. I, I, people do talk about it, so there we are. Oh, absolutely. So you talk about being willing to lose something uh, to save the union, and obviously in that vein, you decided to stand down as Shadow Council General for the Welsh Conservatives in order to vote against the Internal Market Bill. What led you to take that decision, and, and how difficult was that decision to take? Well, well I, I don't like the Internal Market Bill uh, on its own merits. A lot of it will do to the union, so... Uh, for us to take a position that we would uh, break international law on a bilateral treaty that wasn't a year old on a fundamental issue. I mean, it was horrifying, frankly. Um, and I, I just don't know what the likes of church would have thought of behaving that way. So there's that. But uh, I, I don't think the bill will survive in its current shape. You know, when the senior members of the government really look at it and what the implications would be if it went through as it is then uh, I, I think they will roll back. But it still sends a terribly negative uh, uh, signal, even if that's where we end up. So I've I, not kind of, uh, in my position on that, thought, well, I'm now going to take a stand for the union, even though politically I quite like the, uh, uh, the proposition. I don't. I think the, in, uh, the internal market bill is you know, one of the most damaging uh, bills to have been produced on, uh, on, on a matter of real substance for, you know, many, many years. This, this current UK government, do you think they are damaging the union even further with this sort of muscular unionism? Not a sort of, and I, and I want a distinction, to make a distinction here between muscular unionism that is a, a sort of a positive unionism and a muscular unionism that is a sort of bully boy mentality to the other devolved administrations? Do you think they are posing some sort of existential threat to the union or at least going some way to damage it even further with their actions in these? Well, I, I think they're bewildered rather than, you know, malign about it. I, I don't think they've sat down and thought, how could we stick it to the Scots? And, uh, and therefore, you know, we're in the slipstream and we end up sticking it to the Welsh. I don't think that's the motivation. And there is a need to clarify what the internal market would be there is a need to entrench um, powers of central government. I mean, that's the thing with the federal settlement is that, it, you know, it divides, it doesn't abolish sovereignty at the centre, but it does divide it so that, you know, you share it out. And that's what we've not had. But I don't think that's grasped in London. So they somehow think, all right, we will really um, lay down the law here so there can be no ambiguity. And then there's basically much more control over many issues but not necessarily direct legislative control but you know the purse strings get used or something like the uh the uk prosperity fund and uh I, and so i i just think that's why it's heavy-handed and there's an element i think amongst some in in london of you know what have the scots got against us you know mrs thatcher used to get mystified that you know what why don't they like me more i do so much for them you know it never works, does it? If, if you're in, in that sort of situation of 
self-regard and self-pity or whatever, uh, something's gone seriously wrong. And I, I think that's part of the problem. We've not really looked at what the British constitution needs. You know, it, it, it needs a new act of union, basically. And it would be much better if the UK government now said, right, we will do this. This we will negotiate with the devolved administrations and then you know, the London Assembly and uh, the, the Metro mayors, and we will bring forward legislation that can you know, be a sound structure for the future of the UK, should uh, we all wish to remain in it. And uh, instead, I, I think there's almost a sense of whoever's produced the Internal Market Bill has, has not been involved in some of the constitutional thinking that's gone on, or even uh, the work around the, the the common frameworks, and they've suddenly thought, ideally, what do you want to govern an internal market? And they've come up with a sort of super version of ultra Brussels control and the commission having all these powers that they've, you know, just got uh, persuaded uh, the people uh, to take back control and vote for Brexit. And now they kind of want the UK government to have that control over the internal market and have potential overreach into all things, all, uh, all sorts of things that cannot be devolved. So a very, very messy business and very damaging. So, oh, and muscular unionism is, is sort of badging expenditure, is it? You know, if you give money for a bridge or something. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure the EU got much out of that type of advertising, <laughs> but, you know, perhaps I'm, I'm missing something. No, it's, it's certainly um, an interesting way of, of, of going about showing respect, I suppose, for a devolved administration by being able to spend in areas they have for... 20 years being able to within reason do what they want to so yeah it, it doesn't it doesn't show that we talked about earlier it doesn't show that respect with that you know that mutual recognition between partners so i'm just going to go back in, so back to your 2009 book where you did examine the case for welsh independence albeit briefly uh, as it as is right to do in your very balanced account do you think the case is any stronger than it was in 2009 and why do you think more people are supporting welsh independence than in 2009 do you think it's uh, looking at Scotland and seeing why, seeing them move that way, or do you think it's mostly Brexit? Do you think it's the coronavirus situation and how Wales is looked in that? This sort of indie curiosity is a phenomenon we don't completely understand yet. But I, 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 I think certainly amongst some younger voters, there's uh, you know a concept that if at twenty or thirty, uh, you know you're going to be politically interested. But 40, 50, 60 years, and there's a sense that we may be in a very different place in, over that time, and who knows what will happen. So I think there's a bit of that in it. I mean, Welsh independence, I think, is, is a remote prospect, but it is certainly made more likely by Scottish independence, and then whatever happens in Ireland, and whatever new structures emerge. So it, it, I mean, it, it is not uh, you know, fantastically implausible. Uh, it, it's difficult because of the economic costs that uh, um, you know would uh, uh, have to be borne, even if there was, you know, quite a large sort of transitionary period, and uh, uh, even if you got back into the EU and got help there, and you know, got a good deal on the national debt from the UK government or whatever, yet there would still be one heck of a hole in terms of uh, meeting uh, public spending uh, patterns at the moment. I mean, I don't think it's very likely, but, you know, poorer countries than Wales have opted for independence. If the circumstances just accumulate and push you in that direction, it, it, you know, it might happen. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons I'm writing uh, The Last of the Unionists is, is, is just to remind people, you know, that uh, 
if we don't uh, survive as a UK state uh, in you know more or less current form, it, in terms of the membership anyway with Scotland in, then uh, it's going to be a very strange um, world for England and Wales. And quite how you protect Welsh autonomy in an England and Wales state is quite challenging. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about this incident. I'm, I'm aiming to write something, possibly uh, um, in the nearish future, as in the next few months, because it's genuinely difficult. So, and I think that also then means, well, some people say, well, let's have independence then, even though, yeah, you know, there are there are fundamental challenges with it. I don't think that you know there would be any lack of ability to govern ourselves as a state. I don't think that would be an issue. Um, you know, there, there, there are many states smaller than Wales, and uh, you know there would be the possibility of a different sort of uh, um, constellation w- within the former UK, anyway. So uh, you know that may lead to all sorts of new structures. So who knows? It opens the door a bit, I suppose. The uh, Scottish secession would open the door a bit to Welsh independence in the next couple of generations, but uh, I. I wouldn't bet much money on it, but it, it, is, it is a possibility. Do you understand the, the growing cause for English independence? I've, we've seen a few polls in the last few months that have shown that growing quite significantly. Do you think that's just some sort of like Brexit throwback, or do you think that's the weird asymmetry of British devolution that they've not had a parliament of their own before, and now they just want to have some sort of uh, tangible representative body? I think it's uh, the old joke was, of course, uh, you don't need to create an English Parliament; they've already got one. It's Westminster, and I think that's, you know, been the kind of attitude uh, many have taken. But I think we're in new territory because uh, London Sea and the Southeast has become this sort of super charged to the world uh, regional economy, which doesn't fit into the rest of the UK very easily. Fits in much more into. Uh, the globalized world and this has definitely created pressures uh within the english regions and uh that's uh, had an effect but, you know as far as english identity is concerned they have tended to look at britishness as a sort of englishness writ large and uh I'd, and and that's not going to survive and britishness is getting renegotiated and if we can't come up with a fitting that into a new sense of the union then uh, I, you know, I do think then the union stays numbered. And, and I suppose that's the dilemma the, the English faces, you know, is, is this regeneration of, of the union worth the cost? Or shouldn't we just go, you know, because obviously in England would have no problem as an independent state. They'd be nearly as significant as, uh, as Britain was, you know, they would have uh, in material terms, I mean, they would lose legitimacy and, you know, there would be questions about, um, uh, you know, some of our positions, as England's position, um, as the successor state to the UK, having a seat on the Security Council of the UN, things like that. So it, it's certainly plausible. You know, at the moment, we're, we're not at that stage, but it could be the next stage if we're not careful, if people don't value the union. So, you know, that's part of my, my argument. So you've told us there's potentially plans for a book, but what else is next for you once you stand down uh, in May? Do you plan to continue with Last of the Unionists? Do you maybe plan to turn that into a book? What, what sort of things are you thinking about doing? 
Well, I, I'm not sure there's a market for much of this, but what... Um, I think that there definitely I'll is. I'll certainly I think. continue writing. It's a, a niche of uh, Welsh Yeah, Welsh I did. But of course, I mean, I, I, the wonder... I mean, we have so many bad things about social media, but, but you know, one of the extraordinary things is a dinosaur like me, a irascible old Tory. You know, suddenly you get a following and people are, are you know, they seem to be anyway, reading it quite regularly. So I, I, I'm sure I, I'll go on uh, writing them. I mean, if anyone comes with a, uh, you know, an offer to publish them as a book, then you know, I'll be uh, open not to lucrative financial offers. I'm sure uh, you wouldn't make a penny from it. But if people didn't think it was worthy of that, then uh, of being in a book form, then fine. But I, I mean, really, what I want to do is uh, really look at what would Wales's constitutional options be and do that within the sort of wider question of what the union needs to offer Scotland and indeed the other countries, you know, we just talk about English identity and the possibility of, of some form of, of English political institution as well, or institutions developing. So I, I think I would look, I would like to look at that because I, I do think we will face, and I want to do this in time for the second Scottish referendum, which I'm pretty sure will occur sometime in the first half of the 2020s. David Melding, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. You're most welcome, Matthew. Thank you. If you like what you've heard tonight, find us on Meetin at Heroes Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Heroes Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Heroes Blog. Thank you for listening to Heroes. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.